You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 29, Kathleen O'Brien Doyle and Andrea Bowman. It was 1980. Vivian Mahoney was concerned. She was not able to get a hold of her friend Kathleen. The two had hung out just two days before, but on this Thursday, September 11th, Kathleen wasn't answering her phone, and she hadn't answered her phone the entire previous day or evening. This was unusual, and it worried Vivian. So, after trying one more time to call Kathleen, Vivian and her husband James got into their car to drive over to Kathleen's house at 9432 Granby Street in the Pinewell section of Ocean View, Norfolk, Virginia. Kathleen was married, but Vivian knew that Kathleen's husband, Steve, wasn't around. That's because Steve was an active-duty lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, and he was somewhere on an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean flying fighter jets. Kathleen was living alone during his months-long deployment, as were many military spouses in Norfolk, the home base for the U.S. Navy's Atlantic Fleet at the largest naval base in the world. So when Vivian couldn't reach Kathleen, she was concerned enough to take it upon herself to go over there and check on her friend. James drove the couple to the Doyle home before noon. He parked outside the small house and waited in the car while Vivian approached the front door. As she walked toward the house, she noticed that mail stuck out of the mailbox. The front porch light was on, but it certainly didn't appear as though anyone was around. But then she saw that the screen door that led from the front porch into the house was unlocked. Two days' worth of newspapers were sitting just inside the screen door. The screen door itself was cracked open so that when Vivian tentatively knocked on it, it swung inward. Vivian saw right away that on the coffee table in the living room, which was in the front of the house, were two empty wine glasses. She knew who had emptied them. She and Kathleen had shared a bottle of wine on the evening of September 9th. It didn't look as though anyone had moved them, much less tidied them up, after she had left Kathleen's home around 9 or 9.30 p.m. on Tuesday. She walked through the little house toward the bedroom, and there lay Kathleen on the floor of the master bed. Vivienne ran screaming out of the house to her husband, still sitting in the car. She told him breathlessly that Kathleen was on the floor, and she looked dead. James ran into the house. As Vivian had said, Kathleen lay on the bedroom floor. She was naked, bound, and gagged. Blood on her body had long since dried. She was cool to the touch. James carefully felt her wrist for a pulse, but there was none. James gestured Vivian into the house and told her to use the house phone to call police while he checked around. Vivian picked up the receiver, but the phone would not work. James went next door and knocked at the neighbor's door and asked to call 911. The Norfolk police and fire departments responded to the scene promptly. 
The victim, identified by her friend Vivian as 25-year-old Kathleen O'Brien Doyle, was declared dead on the scene around noon. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Farouk Preswala arrived in person and determined based on full rigor mortis that Kathleen had been dead for quite some time. He also noted a dried, matted, whitish material on her genital area that he believed could be semen. The body was carefully wrapped and removed to the office of the chief medical examiner for an autopsy. When Vivian, James, and the EMTs observed Kathleen on the bedroom floor, they all noted the following. Kathleen was lying on the floor face up, naked, with dried blood apparent. This was the result of a stab wound in her left chest area. Her hands were tied behind her. She was gagged, and an electrical cord was wrapped around her neck. It was a brutal scene, one that I'm certain her friend Vivian wished she had never witnessed. Dr. Preswala performed the autopsy on September 12th. I am quoting directly from the autopsy report here. Death resulted from homicidal causes. The decedent showed evidence of sexual abuse with punching and blunt force injuries to the face and mouth, kicking to the stomach, being tied up, gagged, and stabbed with an electrical cord and stabbed in the back, and a separate stab in the front which failed to penetrate due to the blade impaling on the rib which was fractured. The formal cause of death concluded the report was, quote, mechanical asphyxia by strangulation and stab wounds with internal hemorrhage. Dr. Preswala also noted the presence of sperm in vaginal and cervical swabs taken during the autopsy and on a foreign pubic hair found on the victim's body. Kathleen was believed to have been deceased for more than 24 hours before she was found. The pathologist thought she had been tied up after she was stabbed. She had been assaulted, raped, and murdered in the most extreme, violent manner. It was a classic example of overkill done by someone, it was felt, who was very, very angry with women. But who would do this to this lovely, sweet, and cerebral young woman? Let's talk about Kathleen. Kathleen O'Brien was born on April 8, 1955, in Pennsylvania to Dad John and Mom Bertha Kramer Watson. The O'Briens were a Navy family, and Kathleen and her brothers grew up moving all over the country. Eventually, John retired and settled in San Diego. Kathleen attended the exclusive liberal arts Amherst College and was a born writer. She kept journals and regularly documented her life in pensive entries. Her father described her as vivacious and enthusiastic, full of hope and joy. In September 1980, Kathleen was a newlywed. She had married Naval Lieutenant Stephen Doyle the previous December, and the two settled in Norfolk as Stephen was based there. He left for active duty in April 1980, and Kathleen was left alone. She visited her mom for several weeks in California, but otherwise she hung out with the other Navy wives, for in those days, the partners remaining stateside were nearly always women. She went to aerobics classes at Old Dominion University and pursued her writing. Acquaintances and other Navy wives considered her a very sweet and pleasant person. The small house on Granby Road that she and Stephen lived in was in an upper-middle-class neighborhood with tightly clustered, modest homes, many of which were occupied by Navy families and Methodist church ministers and their families. The area was considered very safe and family-oriented. In fact, it was sandwiched between two golf courses, not usually places associated with brutal homicides. Until Kathleen's murder, and another murder which I will touch on, destroyed the feeling of security enjoyed by the service families in the area. Now for the investigation. Crime scene investigators L.C. Melcher and G. Patterson arrived and secured and began processing the scene. Remember that I mentioned that when Vivian tried to call 911, the phone didn't work. 
Well, investigators found out that it had been deliberately disabled. Someone had removed the internal mouthpiece to the phone, rendering it useless as whomever the caller phoned would be unable to hear anything. It was not clear whether this was done before or after Kathleen was slain. If after, then the tactic would have been intended to keep whoever found Kathleen from dialing 911. But if beforehand, then it would have been intended to prevent Kathleen herself from calling for help. A terrifying thought. Because once her assailant had waylaid her and tied her up, there would be no need to disable the phone. But if he disabled the phone before the attack in case she somehow got to the phone, it meant that her attacker was in the house, either awaiting her return or while she was home. An incredibly chilling thought. This thought did not escape police, and they took a look at the entrances to the house to try to figure out how the assailant had gotten inside. Well, it hadn't been too difficult. Vivian told investigators that her friend Kathleen usually locked her doors, but the windows were a different story. And sure enough, investigators noted that there was no sign of forced entry on any of the doors, but that nine of the ground floor windows, although closed, were unlocked. And this looked like it was how Kathleen's killer had gotten in. This from the stipulation of evidence, quote, At the rear of the house, a piece of wood was observed leaned against the house under the spare bedroom window next to a utility meter, which, in tandem, would allow a person on the outside to stand upon and gain access to the window, for this window was observed in the raised position. In other words, someone had set up the piece of wood so he could step onto it and step onto the utility meter and from there raise the unlocked window. Someone wanted to get inside Kathleen's house very badly. Homicide detectives T.H. Pollard and R.J. Mears inventoried and collected a number of physical items at the scene, including the comforter that Kathleen was found lying on. They also gathered up a marble rolling pin that was found near Kathleen's body. It was thought that this item might have been used to hit her over the head, although that has never been proven. The handles on the opposite ends of the rolling pin were both broken. Crime scene photos show the bottom drawer under the oven left open. This is where Kathleen kept the rolling pin, her family told investigators. In fact, most of the items used by the killer came from within the house. The cord around Kathleen's neck was cut from her electronic contact lens machine. Back in the day, you had to cook your glass contact lenses in this cleaning machine to sanitize them. The gag in her mouth was believed to be a garment belonging to Kathleen herself, as it was consistent with some of her other clothing items. The rope around her wrists were of uncertain origin. Several of the early investigators believed that the rope was cut from one of several rugs that Kathleen had recently washed. In fact, this was why Vicky was over at her house on September 9th to help Kathleen with this chore. A knife thought to possibly have been used to cut the rope from the rugs lay on the bedroom dresser. It was from the kitchen, but bore no traces of blood, telling investigators that it was not the knife used to stab Kathleen twice. The knife that was used to stab her was never found, and to this day, it is not known whether it was a knife from the Doyle house. Crime scene techs also did not find the missing telephone mouthpiece anywhere in the home. All of these evidentiary items collected were submitted to the Bureau of Forensic Science for analysis. Crime scene techs collected a number of fingerprints from the home, including latents in the living room and bedroom, but none from the back first-floor spare bedroom window through which they believed the attacker had entered. And detectives were disappointed when they were informed that the latents found could all be attributed to Kathleen, her husband Steve, or Vivian. 
One unidentified Leighton was found on an envelope somewhere in the home, but it was not suspected to be related to the crime. Detectives tried to pin down exactly when Kathleen had been attacked. Remember that Vivian had been over to Kathleen's for carpet cleaning and a glass of wine on the night of September 9th, leaving between 9 and 9.30. The empty wine glasses had never been cleaned up, something Kathleen's family said she certainly would have done before she went to bed that night. She also usually turned the porch light off before bed, but it was found on. The newspapers inside the screen door were dated September 10th and 11th, so they knew that Kathleen had never retrieved her paper on Wednesday morning. Sometime between Vivian leaving and the morning paper delivery time was the window of opportunity. Investigators tracked down the paper boy, but he only could tell them that he had tried to collect money for the papers, had knocked on the door, and had received no response. Telephone records of calls to and from the Doyle home were helpful. They showed that at 9.32 p.m. on the 9th, presumably right after Vivian left the house, Kathleen made a long-distance call trying to reach a male friend from college who lived out of state. He wasn't home, so she left a message. But Kathleen had been supposed to talk to her mom, who lived on the West Coast, at midnight her time. That call never happened. The window of time for the attack was getting smaller. Detectives were fairly certain that the whole thing was over by the morning of the 10th, the day that Vivian had spent trying unsuccessfully to reach her friend by phone. Kathleen was found lying on a comforter on the floor of the master bedroom, the room that was in disarray. It looked as though the whole thing had gone down there. Vivian's husband James had observed that the bedroom where Kathleen was found looked as though there had been a struggle. The room was in disarray with the mattress and bedding askew and things knocked over. Melcher and Patterson noted that the light was on in the bedroom. Most people turn off the lights in the bedroom during daytime. The lights were also on in the living room and in a second bedroom. This told them that it had almost certainly been dark outside when the attack occurred. And there was some more evidence that Kathleen had been getting ready for bed when her assailant struck. The drapes in Kathleen's bedroom were closed. A red nightgown was found in the bedroom with long hairs caught in the straps. Remember, Kathleen was found nude. Also, remember that her contact lenses were resting in the sanitizing machine. It was her custom to take them out as she was preparing to retire for the night. It's unimaginable how frightened she must have been in her nightie and not able to see well when her killer entered the bedroom and grabbed her. For that's exactly what investigators believe happened. The comforter, which matched the bedding on the master bed, slid off the bed under her as she was pulled to the ground and brutalized. It took authorities some time to reach Kathleen's husband, Stephen, on the nuclear carrier USS Eisenhower and notify him of his wife's murder. He was not able to get transport back to Norfolk until a week had elapsed. He went through the house with the investigators and was able to answer some of their questions about what was out of place, where things were kept, and so on. But he did not have answers to the question on everyone's mind, who killed Kathleen? One can only imagine the irrational guilt that Stephen might have felt having left her alone and vulnerable, especially given what had recently happened to another Navy wife. 20-year-old Susan Woodruff had been raped and strangled in her Bay Street home on August 24th. Like Kathleen, Susan's husband was stationed on an aircraft carrier, the USS Kennedy, far from home in France. Susan was found dead in her bathtub after she missed a phone call from her husband. On the same day that Kathleen was suspected to have been killed, Susan's next-door neighbor, a Rodney Robinson, had been charged with her murder. 
He hadn't killed Kathleen, but the coincidence of two different killers preying on military wives was even more unsettling. Walter Craig of the Navy Family Service Center told the Daily Press, quote, There is definitely fear going on around here this morning. Judging from what I've heard from the girls in here, they're scared. I mean, this is the second murder in three weeks. It seems like they're preying on women who are alone while their husbands are away. It sends chills up their spines when they read about it. Despite the close proximity of the houses on the street, no one had heard any screams emanating from the Doyle home that night. But police found a witness, a neighbor who had seen something. A man on the street parallel to Granby, one block from the Doyles, had woken at one in the morning because his dogs were barking. He looked out the window and saw a white male with a short haircut running northbound on the street. A passing car's headlights illuminated the man, and he quickly jumped into the bushes. As soon as the car passed, the man emerged from the bushes and slunk into the darkness. This was almost certainly Kathleen's killer. In Kathleen's case, unlike Susan's, there were no immediately apparent suspects. Her husband had one of the most rock-solid alibis possible. She didn't have any disgruntled exes. No strange cars were observed parked in the area, and so on. So, a wider investigation began. But the Doyles didn't have a huge circle of friends and acquaintances. As listeners know, military families tend to move around quite a bit. Kathleen and Stephen had only moved to the area in 1979, and their social circle comprised almost exclusively Navy personnel. The couple of newlyweds had a small circle of friends, their families, and each other, and that was it. It wasn't a massive footprint. They had only been married the previous December. They were still newlyweds. Kathleen and her tabby cat Ike, as in Eisenhower, her husband's ship, I would guess, had been living alone since Stephen was deployed in April. By the way, for all who are concerned, Ike the cat was okay. His glowing eyes are apparent, peering from under some furniture in one or two of the crime scene photos. If only he could talk to answer the question, who killed Kathleen? Police also wanted to know, did the killer target Kathleen? Did he know that she was home solo that night? It seemed too much of a coincidence that he would have selected a house where there just happened to be a woman living by herself. But investigators did turn up one potential lead. Kathleen had recently attended a wedding in Connecticut with her college friends. There, she caught up with a male college friend, and she told him something disturbing. She said that a guy was giving her the creeps. She asked this college friend if it was okay if she called him if she was scared. Remember, her husband was out of town for months. Her friend said of course it was. He was the friend that Kathleen had tried to phone that night after Vivian left the house. He told Virginia investigators that it was not normal for Kathleen to phone him. Since he wasn't home that night, he didn't know why she had called, but investigators wondered whether something had spooked her after Vivian left. They also found the phone number for the Norfolk Police Department pinned to her refrigerator. It was beginning to look like Kathleen might have had a stalker, but they had no idea who he was. The Norfolk PD investigated this case very thoroughly, but it quickly went cold. First of all, the suspect just had not left a lot of evidence behind. The only things he left, semen and possibly a pubic hair, were of little evidentiary value in 1980. The hair could be used for comparison purposes only, using methods that have since been discredited. And the analysis of the seminal fluid might have been able to tell investigators the blood type of their killer, but that's about it. The killer had taken with him the implement used to stab Kathleen and even the phone mouthpiece, and had left no discernible prints. 
No one heard anything, and the eyewitness did not recognize the man he saw. And a white guy with a crew cut in a Navy town is hardly a clue. It was an investigative black hole. The Norfolk PD emphasized that the agency had looked into all known family members, friends, neighbors, work associates, and known contacts of both Kathleen and her husband. Their investigation included other naval officers who had even the most tangential connection to the Doyles. But they just failed to turn up any substantial leads. This directly from the charging document, quote, No viable additional leads were developed thereafter, although the NPD continued over the next four years to pursue and investigate any suspects committing similar offenses or having any connection to the Doyle family. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. As you just heard, nothing happened on the case for nearly four years. Investigators were just up against a brick wall, and they began grasping at straws a bit. And then, a self-confessed serial killer entered the national spotlight, and desperate investigators from all over the country scrambled to attribute their cold cases to him. Of course, I'm talking about Henry Lee Lucas. Now, we know that Lucas was a serial false confessor, a braggart, and attention seeker who claimed to have killed hundreds of women. He was eventually convicted of killing 11, but the number of his victims is not really known. But when he first emerged on the scene, claiming to have killed between 360 and 600 women in multiple states, law enforcement initially had no way to know that he was falsifying so many of his claimed kills. He was good at making it look as though he had inside knowledge of the crime scenes and at saying what investigators were looking to hear. He liked the spotlight and the special treatment he received as he continued to cooperate, in air quotes. Investigators from across the U.S. closed 213 cold case murders after they met with him, and he knew just enough to make them feel comfortable that he was their man. So what does all this have to do with Kathleen Doyle? Well, for a time, investigators on her case put all their eggs in the Henry Lee Lucas basket. This after he confessed to investigators in Texas that he had killed four women in the Tidewater area of Virginia. This included Norfolk, and it raised eyebrows among the stymied Doyle investigators. Maybe Lucas was the elusive murderer they were seeking. Norfolk authorities flew to Texas and got in line to talk to Lucas. And in November 1984, there was big news. Henry Lee Lucas and his partner, Otis Toole, had been charged in Kathleen's four-year-old murder. Lucas was already on death row in Texas for killing 15-year-old Frida Powell, and Toole was on death row in Florida. This from the Daily Press, quote, Norfolk Police Sergeant R.E. Hazlett said Lucas confessed to killing Ms. Doyle and also implicated Toole in the murder. 
Hazlett was quoted in the Winchester Star saying, quote, in his description, there were similarities to what we had found at the crime scene. Further, according to the Virginian pilot, Hazlett requested authorities in Florida send him information about Lucas and Toole's hair and blood types for comparison. After analyzing the results, Norfolk detectives determined that information, quote, matched forensic evidence found at the scene. Now, at the time, this could have been considered legitimate scientific proof that Toole and Lucas could have been responsible. One of the men could easily have had the same blood type as the killer, a very general category, and hair analysis was relied on by law enforcement in the mid-80s, even though since, as I said, it has been largely discredited. In fact, the FBI had to go back and review over 2,600 cases in which hair evidence was relied upon. This was because at the time, around 1980 to 1999 or so, hairs were compared by lab techs using a simple microscope. If the hair appeared the same, that was enough. Now we know that a match between hairs must be done at the genetic level. Anyway, presumably the pubic hair found on Kathleen was close enough to a sample taken from Toole or Lucas that it was considered a match. With the hair, the blood type, and Lucas's confession, it was enough to give Norfolk investigators temporary confidence that the case had been solved. But Virginia authorities never moved forward with these charges. As various investigative agencies dug deeper and deeper into Toole and Lucas and their activities and travels, inconsistencies popped up that could not be ignored. In April 1986, the Texas Attorney General issued the Lucas Report. It addressed dozens of the murders to which Lucas confessed, including Kathleen's. The report noted that in his confession to the Newport police detectives, Lucas stated that Toole's niece, Frida Powell, the one he would later murder, was present with him and Toole when they killed Kathleen Doyle. But investigators putting together Lucas's timeline noted that actually, Frida was in school in Florida on September 9th through 11th, 1980, and Lucas himself had sold 97 pounds of scrap metal in Jacksonville on September 10th. It was not possible that Lucas was in both Florida and Virginia on September 10th. It was all BS, like so many of Lucas's tales. The warrants against Lucas and Toole for Kathleen's murder were eventually null-prost, and the case was back to square one. Much later, in 2003, John O'Brien, Kathleen's father, wrote a letter to the Virginian pilot. John had been one of the people who noticed the inconsistencies in Lucas's timeline that didn't add up, and he threw the police under the bus for the whole Lucas debacle. I'm going to quote directly from the letter here. It is my opinion that my daughter's case might have been solved long ago if only the Norfolk Police Department had not been duped into believing a national-scale hoax perpetrated by Henry Lee Lucas. In the early 1980s, Lucas confessed to killing hundreds of women, including our Kathleen. Dozens of cities and towns across the country indicted Lucas and thus, quote, cleared their books of many terrible crimes. Norfolk was one of these cities. For more than a dozen years, from 1984 to 1996, the Norfolk Police Department's upper echelon defended this dubious, and I believe politically expedient, theory, despite much evidence to the contrary. By the mid-1990s, I was able to convince a few younger members of the Norfolk Police Department that Lucas and his partner, Otis Toole, could not have killed Kathleen, because information indicated that Lucas and Toole were in the Jacksonville, Florida area on the night of September 9, 1980. 
So what John O'Brien is saying in this letter is that he believes that Lucas was an all-too-convenient suspect for the Norfolk PD and other law enforcement agencies to pin their unsolved cases on in order to check the solved box and clear the cases off their books. In their defense, detectives were very eager to provide Kathleen's family with answers, and with Lucas and Toole for a time, seemed as though they had succeeded. Once John retired from the Navy, he made it his life's mission to see his daughter's case solved. He became a forceful and insistent advocate for her and refused to allow her case to wither away. He was so involved that the charging documents in the case cite his efforts as the reason the case was reopened in 1995. That year, the Norfolk Police and the Office of the Commonwealth Attorney launched a full reinvestigation of the case. Using the samples taken from autopsy in which sperm had been detected, the Virginia Division of Forensic Science utilized then-cutting-edge DNA analysis to isolate a profile that was sufficient for comparison and elimination purposes. Detective Scott Halverson painstakingly began to track down each witness, family contact, military contact, and remotely connected person in the case, and obtain a DNA sample from each. Each person was systematically eliminated, including Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. John O'Brien continued to work with the Norfolk authorities on this endeavor throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Then, in 2001, with the previous reinvestigation yielding no results, Detective Donnie Norell was looking at the evidence in the case, and he realized that the green comforter that Kathleen had been found on had never been tested. There it was, in the Norfolk PD property and evidence unit, bagged up and untouched for 21 years. For some reason, it had been kept separate from the other evidence in the case, so it was never subjected to analysis. The Division of Forensic Science was able to isolate a single foreign male DNA profile from the bedspread. It was consistent with the profile from the vaginal and cervical swabs and the pubic hair. At this time, in the early 2000s, the profile was submitted to CODIS, but there were never any matches. The Norfolk PD and the Navy's NCIS continued to plug away, working jointly throughout the 2000s and 2010s. And John O'Brien never gave up. He was insistent that his daughter's case merited more attention than it got. Here is another excerpt from his 2003 letter, quote, Over the years, three competent and sincere young Norfolk detectives have investigated Kathleen's murder on a cold case basis. They were, to my mind, not given the wholehearted support of their superiors or sufficient manpower and money to do the job. John O'Brien was doing what any bereaved parent would do, pushing for attention on his loved one's case and I am sure that he felt that investigators were not devoting it ample time and resources. But, as we have seen in so many of these long, unsolved cold cases, their remaining open is through little to no fault on the part of the investigators. All the detective work and diligence in the world cannot surmount the obstacles presented by a stranger-on-stranger crime of opportunity with no witnesses, little to no physical evidence, and no confession. At least, that was true in the era before forensic genealogy. Phil Evans, who prosecuted this case in Virginia and worked it since 1995, told me that this case was unique in that evidence was continually tested using every increasingly sophisticated iteration of DNA extraction and testing techniques. Eventually, more than 100 tests were done, with 24 different certificates of analysis issued by the Department of Forensic Science between 1995 and 2019. 
In 2015, using the genetic profile of the suspect, Virginia authorities conducted a familial DNA search of the state's criminal database. There were no felons in the database who were related to their suspects, so this was a dead end. It would turn out that Kathleen's killer was not originally from Virginia, so he was not likely to have relatives in the system there. Sadly, John O'Brien passed away in 2016. The case was still being worked, but was ice cold. John died without ever knowing who had killed his daughter and that he would soon be brought to justice. In August 2018, Norfolk Police cold case detectives Victor Powell and John Smith, working in conjunction with NCIS, contacted Parabon Nanolabs, located upstate, to conduct forensic genealogy. NCIS footed the bill, and the NPD sent the male DNA profile extracted from the bedspread to Parabon. Parabon predicted that the suspect was a white male of Northern European and Southwestern European descent, and they set to work on the genealogy, which was very, very challenging. The call rate of the sample that Parabon had to work with was extremely low, meaning that it was not a strong sample and much of the genetic information was missing. A very low call rate makes the resulting list of DNA matches much more difficult to decipher. Further, the two closest matches to the suspect that Parabon had to work with were somewhat distant, estimated to be in the category of second cousins once or even twice removed. But they might possibly be a little closer because of all the missing data. The rest of the matches were very low, so those top two matches are all Parabon really had to go on. These two distant relatives shared DNA with each other, which is both good and bad. On the good side, since they share DNA with one another, if the genealogist can determine their shared ancestors, that would mean the perpetrator would likely descend from that same set of common ancestors. However, on the bad side, the fact that they were related to each other meant that they represented only one side of the suspect's family tree. Ideally, both sides of the suspect's family tree are represented in the matches to allow the genealogist to triangulate them, that is, to identify a couple either the grandparents or parents of the suspect, who joined the distinct sets of matches together. In this case, all the genealogist could do was determine the common ancestor of the two matches and the suspect and list all their descendants who were within the right age range at the time, 1980, to be the killer. Unless any of those descendants was found to have a strong geographic link to the crime or perhaps have a history of sexually related crimes, the list of descendants would not be able to be narrowed down any further. As a result, the pool of names that Parabon provided was quite large. Parabon's November 4, 2019 report to the Norfolk authorities contained the names of more than 30 men sharing some level of DNA with the unknown suspect. One of the men on the list was almost certainly the killer, and all the others were believed to be a close kinship relation of the killer. To the Norfolk authorities, it seemed to be a disappointing result, but their field of suspects now went from every white male in the United States to a list of around 30 candidates. Detective Smith received this report on a Thursday. He had Friday off, but spent that day and the weekend internet searching some of the names on the list to try to figure out who these people were and whether they had criminal histories or connections to Norfolk. On Monday, Detective Smith attended a Southeast Homicide Investigators Association conference in Norfolk, which had over 300 attendees and at which C.C. Moore was a speaker. Detective Smith attributes this next part to blind luck. 
He is being modest because it is thanks to his inquisitiveness that what happened, happened. His actions probably saved two to three years that the Norfolk PD would have spent investigating all the names on Parabon's list. Smith had an acquaintance from the Michigan State Police at the conference. In his research over the weekend, Detective Smith had noted that one of the names on the list of names provided by Parabon, in fact the second name from the bottom, was a Michigan man. And this man had a criminal history that included sex crimes. So Smith decided to ask his Michigan State Police contact about this name. He did, and she called over some colleagues, and Detective Smith inquired as to whether they had any familiarity with this guy's name. And one of the troopers, Brian Fuller, sure did. He recognized the name right away. In fact, he knew it all too well. They put together that the suspect had been arrested in Michigan in 1980, but had bonded out immediately. He was free when Kathleen Doyle was murdered in September 1980. Based on what he knew of him, Fuller told Detective Smith, he's probably your guy. The man's name was Dennis Lee Bowman. And it just so happened the Michigan State Police had a sample of this guy's DNA on file. The Michigan Crime Lab and the Virginia Department of Forensic Science Lab each sent each other their DNA sample information. Virginia sent the Kathleen Doyle killer's DNA profile to Michigan, and Michigan sent Dennis Bowman's profile to Virginia. Both labs confirmed it. The DNA profile for Dennis Bowman was a match to the DNA profile of the unknown suspect isolated from the stained comforter in the Doyle case. Detective Smith had a name in four days where previous investigators could not find one in 39 years. Receiving the word about Dennis Bowman from their Michigan State Police counterparts, Allegan County Michigan deputies started surveilling him. Once the DNA match was confirmed, Detective Smith got on a plane and was present for the arrest. Once they had secured an arrest warrant based on the information from the Norfolk Police, Allegan County deputies waited for the right time. Then, on the morning of Friday, November 22, 2019, they watched Bowman leave his home at 5.30 a.m. to head to his job for an auto-hauling company. They anticipated that he would stop for coffee at his regular spot, a Burnips area gas station, as they had been watching him do the same all week. When he emerged with his hot cup of joe in hand, they swooped in. In a press release announcing the arrest, Norfolk Police Chief Larry Boone praised his force and NCIS for sticking with this case. Quote, This 39-year-long investigation demonstrates the Norfolk Police Department's commitment to pursue justice for victims and their families, no matter how long it takes. No victim is ever forgotten. I would like to recognize the women and men of NCIS for their commitment to this case. NCIS has been partnered with us from the beginning of this investigation, and their contributions throughout the years have been instrumental in solving this case. I would also like to thank the Allegan County, Michigan Sheriff's Office, Michigan State Police, Ottawa County, Michigan Sheriff's Office, and North Carolina State Police for their assistance. So, who is this Dennis Bowman? Dennis Lee Bowman was born on March 14, 1949, in Muskegon, Michigan. He worked as a wood machinist, among other things, and made very little money. His wife, Brenda, was the primary breadwinner. The two met in Virginia and were married for several decades. They moved to Michigan in the 1970s. When Bowman was arrested, the couple was living in a small ranch home at 3210 136th Avenue outside Hamilton in a rural area. They had lived on this property since 1990. 
After Bowman was taken away in cuffs, state police crime lab personnel swarmed the house and took it apart, looking for evidence relating to Kathleen's murder. Neighbors who spoke to the media said that Bowman was a weirdo who kept to himself. One woman said that she always avoided him because he made her uneasy. Another said she thought he had peeped in her windows. And by the way, these neighbors had ample reason to fear Dennis Bowman. He had quite the criminal record. On May 23, 1980, a 19-year-old West Olive woman who has not been named but whose initials are K.A. was riding her bicycle on Lakeshore Drive near Kirk Park in Ottawa County, Michigan. This was just four months before Kathleen Doyle was murdered. The young cyclist was forced off the road by a motorcycle-riding man who ordered her to walk into the woods. Still astride her bike, K.A. froze, not moving until the man pulled out a gun and fired a shot near her. He then told her he would blow a hole right through her if she didn't comply. She tried to reason with him, and he said, God damn it, get off your bike and start heading toward the woods. He then shot at the ground mere inches from her right foot. But just at that moment, a car approached on the roadway. The man's eyes turned to the car, and K.A. took the opportunity to pedal furiously out into the highway. She rode her bike right in front of an approaching pickup truck. The driver of the truck stopped, and K.A. threw her bicycle into the bed of the truck and jumped in. The man didn't give chase, and K.A. arrived home less than a mile away safely. When she got there, her parents called the police, and K.A. was able to provide a description of the suspect— a white male with tinted glasses, a mustache, a blue helmet, and a black box on the back of his motorcycle. The police rounded up the man, Dennis Bowman, within 15 minutes, and he was ID'd on the spot by the would-be victim as the man who had attempted to abduct her. He was charged with assault to intent to commit criminal sexual conduct and let out on bail. This was the arrest that Detective Smith had inquired about. Because if Bowman was arrested on such a serious charge in May of 1980 in Michigan, he was likely to be in jail in September, and therefore would not have been able to be in Virginia murdering Kathleen. But he was out on bail. And, the clincher, U.S. Naval records showed that during the time period of September 9th through 11th, 1980, Dennis Bowman was an E-5 in the U.S. Naval Reserve assigned to the USS Piedmont. He was in Norfolk, Virginia, during the two-week period spanning Kathleen's murder for his annual active-duty drill. He was housed on the naval base less than three miles from her home. There was a Michigan court hearing on the attempted attack on the cyclist five days after Kathleen's murder. Bowman was not in court for this hearing. He had been excused to attend training in Virginia. At the time, Bowman's lawyer told the court, quote, He is a member of the U.S. Army and is away on his two-week summer camp requirement. When he returned to Michigan at the end of the two-week session, no one had any idea that he had killed someone while down there, and his lack of ties to Norfolk made it impossible for Virginia investigators to connect him to Kathleen. According to Fox 17, the cyclist attack case dragged on for nearly two years. Finally, in 1981, Bowman was convicted of assault with intent to commit criminal sexual conduct for the attempted attack on the bicyclist. He received five to ten years. He appealed the sentence, which was rejected. According to Fox 17, the judge's comments included the following, quote, The psychologist indicates that Bowman presents the clinical picture of a rapist, and we conclude that he is a danger to women if he is not confined. Bowman was incarcerated and served five years at Kinross Correctional Facility. He was released in February of 1986. 
Okay, so back to 2019. Bowman was arrested by Allegan County authorities working with the Norfolk police. He was charged with second-degree murder. He was Mirandized and refused to talk without an attorney, so he was detained in the Allegan County jail while extradition proceedings were initiated. Bowman decided to fight extradition to the death penalty state of Virginia, so there was a delay while this was worked out in court. Finally, on February 7, 2020, he was taken to the West Michigan Regional Airport and put on a plane for Virginia. Upon his arrival, he was turned over to the Norfolk Police Department and the Virginia State Police Special Investigations Unit without incident. Once in custody in Norfolk, Bowman was required to submit a buckle swab for DNA analysis. After testing it, the Virginia Department of Forensic Science issued a certificate of analysis dated March 2, 2020, confirming that Dennis Lee Bowman could not be eliminated as being a contributor to the spermatozoa stain on the green bedspread taken from under Kathleen. The report states that the probability of randomly selecting a person who would be included as a contributor to that stain is one in greater than 7.2 billion people. The same exact statistics were true for the cervical and vaginal swabs that were recovered from Kathleen's body. Dennis Bowman was the only person on the planet who could have left semen inside Kathleen and on the comforter under her dead body. Grand jury indictments for first-degree murder, burglary, and rape were issued on March 4, 2020. The charges were more serious than the second-degree murder Bowman had originally been accused of, but they were largely a formality. Dennis Bowman had confessed. On February 8th, the day after he arrived in Virginia, Bowman asked to speak with Detective John Smith. After being advised of his rights, he confessed the following from the charging document. He entered the residence at 9432 Granby Street in September 1980 without permission or lawful authority. The defendant said he was drunk and entered the house to steal. That he entered through a back window into a spare bedroom using wood laid against the house. That he walked through the house and physically assaulted a woman in a bedroom during which the woman was stabbed. It never fails to amaze me how mundane the real details are once we have them. After decades of building up the killer as a diabolical monster, it's somehow deflating to hear that he was just a drunk, marauding thief, and the murder was almost a banal afterthought. It's shocking to hear how little consequence these crimes are in the lives of the perpetrators. Bowman gave some more detail to Detective Smith. Smith, whom I spoke with at length, earned Bowman's trust by basically providing a sympathetic ear over a period of several months. Smith played up the religious angle, Bowman was a practicing Lutheran, and appealed to his Christian beliefs and the power of forgiveness. Smith told me that Bowman relished the attention and wanted to talk. Smith never felt that Bowman was 100% honest with him about Kathleen's murder, and he wouldn't admit to everything, but he did shed some light on what had gone down that night. Bowman said, as you heard, that he intended to burglarize and rob the Doyle house. He used a wooden pallet, he said. It was actually a log, he misremembered this part, and used a pocket knife to jimmy open the lock on a rear spare bedroom window. He did not believe that anyone was home, he said. Smith, however, does not believe this. In fact, he leans toward Bowman actually silently breaking in while Kathleen and Vivian were still enjoying their glasses of wine together. Bowman spent a lot of time in the house, opening drawers and cabinets looking for cash or loose change, he said. Smith found that Bowman had an uncanny level of recall about the interior of the home, remembering the layout perfectly and even that the light was on in the living room and on the front porch. 
Bowman did not confirm that he left out the front door, but since it was found unlocked by Vivian, it can be inferred. Anyway, Smith believes that Bowman was lurking in the shadows of the home while Kathleen and Vivian finished their wine, and Vivian left. Kathleen started getting ready for bed. Remember, she took her contacts out and put on her nightgown, but she hadn't yet turned off all the lights or cleaned up the wine glasses. While she was getting ready for bed is when Bowman disabled the phone, found the rolling pin, which may or may not have been used to hit her, and slipped into her bedroom and attacked her. Bowman told Smith that Kathleen was sitting on the end of the bed when he grabbed her. She tried to scream, and he roughly covered her mouth with his left hand and stabbed her in the torso with his right. This part of the encounter angered him, and he spent quite a bit of time brutalizing her, beating her over the head, tying her up and raping her, before finishing her off by strangling her. He admitted to none of this stuff, though. He said he only stabbed her once. He told Smith that he believed Kathleen was alive when he left the home, which is a lie. There is no way anyone could survive what he put her through, and he knew it. Detective Smith is unclear on what exactly Dennis Bowman was thinking that night. Kathleen's room was ransacked, and it's not clear why. He could have been staging a burglary to disguise his true intent to break in and rape Kathleen. Whatever knife was used to stab Kathleen was never found. Smith told me that when they searched Bowman's home after his arrest, they found more than 115 knives in his collection. Bowman also told Detective Smith that he did not wear gloves during the whole event, and he was shocked they had not found his prints. Note that the man Kathleen had told her college friend she thought was stalking her could not have been Dennis Bowman. He lived in Michigan, and it was only in Virginia for two weeks that September. But Detective Smith does believe that it's possible that Bowman actually was watching, or at least had seen Kathleen before the night on which he attacked her. An old photograph found in Bowman's home upon his arrest had the handwritten notation September 1980 in pen on the back. Kids, back in the day we had to write dates on photographs so we could remember when they were taken. The photo was of Ocean View Shopping Center near Kathleen's house. Smith believes that Bowman was at the shopping mall on his September trip to Virginia and perhaps spotted Kathleen there and possibly even followed her home. Also, Detective Smith told me that he knew for a fact that Dennis Bowman was intimately familiar with the area where Kathleen's house was located. When he and his wife Brenda had lived in Virginia, at one point they had lived just 0.6 miles from the Doyle home. Thanks to Detective Smith's patience and insight, we have actually gotten a glimpse into the mind of this killer. And Bowman also shed some light on how these guys get away with these crimes for decades. Bowman told no one of what he did, he said. His exact words to Detective Smith were, The best way to keep a secret is to keep a secret. Anyway, it seems that by February 2020, the jig was up, Bowman was ready to face the music, and he wanted the music to start right away. After confessing, and with the DNA evidence incontrovertible, Bowman told the judge he was eager to accept a plea deal. He said he didn't even need an attorney, he just wanted to plead out. But Judge Robert Rigney, recognizing the seriousness of the charges and that the defendant needed to be fully advised of his rights in the matter, appointed counsel for Bowman and advised him to consult with his new attorney. Despite the more stringent charges, Bowman did end up agreeing to a plea deal, and it wasn't much of a deal for him. On June 10, 2020, the 71-year-old pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, rape, and burglary. He spoke briefly at the hearing, saying that nothing he did could change anything. For what it's worth, he said, he thought Kathleen was alive when he left her. This after stabbing her, beating her and strangling her, and taking the phone mouthpiece with him just in case she were able to call for help.
At the hearing, a woman named Joan Albert addressed the court. She was Kathleen's best friend. This from the Virginian pilot. Joan spoke about the life that Bowman took away. She described meeting Kathleen in college in the 70s. The two often traveled to New York City together to visit Kathleen's beloved aunt. Joan related that even on the eve of her own wedding, Kathleen remembered her best friend's birthday and sent a cake over to her table. Kathleen, Joan said, wanted to be a writer and wrote her husband every day he was deployed. She was cherished and loved, one of the most beautiful persons I have ever met, Joan concluded. Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Philip G. Evans II also spoke at the hearing, detailing John Doyle's lifelong fight to track down his daughter's killer and bring him to justice. John was deceased, but Prosecutor Evans read aloud a statement John once wrote describing his daughter. He said, quote, If you met Kathleen, you never forgot her. I spoke with Phil Evans, and he described for me the incredible commitment that John Doyle exhibited towards solving his daughter's murder. He kept meticulous notes, wrote thorough reports and analyses, came up with theories, and tracked down people and asked for DNA samples. He was relentless and tenacious, and his death before the exposure of Dennis Bowman is one of the true tragedies of this case. When it was all said and done, Circuit Court Judge Mary Hall sentenced Bowman to the maximum, two life terms plus 20 years in prison. He was never getting out. But this story does not end here, and hold on to your hats because this part gets really crazy. One of the things that Detective Smith had found out about Bowman when he was Googling names on Parabon's report was that he was possibly connected to a missing persons case. Remember that I said that state police trooper Brian Fuller recognized Bowman's name right away when Detective Smith brought it up. It turned out that authorities in Michigan were keeping an eye on this guy. While Bowman was sitting in the Allegan County Jail fighting extradition to Virginia, it came to the attention of the media that Dennis Bowman's adopted daughter had gone missing 30 years earlier. And the Michigan authorities were well aware of this. It seems that they had always had their suspicions about Bowman's connection to this disappearance, but nothing concrete. Per the Grand Rapids Press, quote, Allegan County Sheriff Frank Baker acknowledged that Bowman's adopted daughter went missing in the late 1980s, but said police have not tied him to her disappearance. He said that for 30 years, the sheriff's department had been investigating the case and followed up on many leads, but had come up empty. Quote, If there's something that does link us to that case, obviously that'll be something we'll be investigating, Baker said. Well, now they had their link. Alexis Miranda Badger was born in Louisiana on June 23, 1974. Her teenage parents soon split, and she was placed for adoption by her young mother at the age of five months. Finally, at age 21 months, the toddler was adopted by Dennis Bowman and his wife Brenda. They renamed her Andrea. They were living in Virginia at the time, then they soon moved to Michigan. In 1981, when Dennis Bowman was convicted for the attack on the 19-year-old cyclist and sent to prison, Brenda rented a house for herself and Andrea right near the prison. Brenda and Andrea lived there until Bowman was paroled in February 1986. Then they moved to Allegan County. In 1987, Brenda gave birth to a baby girl, Vanessa. 14-year-old Andrea was reported missing to the Allegan County Sheriff's Department on March 11, 1989, by Dennis Bowman. She was last seen at home. Her adoptive parents told authorities she was a runaway and she was acting out after recently discovering that she was adopted. Fast forward to 2019. 
Michigan authorities were working with Virginia investigators, and they started searching Bowman's property on 136th Avenue in Hamilton. They used ground-penetrating radar and dogs to look for any evidence relating to the Kathleen Doyle homicide, is what they said publicly. But now we know they were looking for Andrea. Then, a couple of months after Bowman's arrest, the Western Michigan University Forensic Anthropology Response Unit was seen at his Monterey Township home, sticking long rods into the soil and digging in spots around his three-acre property. Police later would say in a very brief press conference that they obtained a search warrant after receiving information that Andrea was buried on the property. That information turned out to be from a recorded phone call between Bowman and his wife Brenda, which I'll get into in a little bit. Investigators dug up a concrete slab on the property, and finally, on February 5th, 2020, they found her. Andrea had been buried under concrete on the Bowman's property almost since the last date she was seen. Dennis Bowman had killed her nine years after he killed Kathleen Doyle. Bowman was immediately named as a suspect in Andrea's disappearance and death, but investigators had to wait to charge him until the skeletal remains were identified. That happened within weeks. It was Andrea. She had not run away. She was murdered by her father. Bowman was formally charged in Michigan on May 15th. The charges were open murder, felony murder, first-degree child abuse, and mutilation of a body. After Bowman was sentenced to life in Virginia, he was sent back to Michigan to face charges in Andrea's death. He was assigned a public defender and arraigned in August 2020, but the wheels of justice turned slowly because of COVID. Finally, thanks to a preliminary hearing that took place in February 2021, we now know quite a bit about Andrea's last day, as well as the case against Bowman for her murder. The purpose of the preliminary hearing, called a preliminary exam in Michigan, is to establish that there is sufficient probable cause to try a defendant. Several witnesses testified before the court. One was Bowman's wife and Andrea's adoptive mom, Brenda. Brenda testified that Andrea was a difficult and rebellious child. Shortly before she, quote, ran away, Andrea told Brenda that her father, Dennis, had molested her. Brenda did not believe her and accused her of lying. Then, on March 11, 1989, Andrea returned home after a middle school band concert, which she had been excited about. Then she met with her tutor. The tutor told Dennis and Brenda that Andrea wasn't completing her work or putting in any effort on her schoolwork, and she and Dennis were frustrated with the teen. Dennis drove Brenda to work in the late afternoon, and he told his wife he was going to a relative's house. Andrea stayed home to do her homework. According to Brenda's testimony, when Dennis picked her up after work, he told her Andrea had stolen some money from their dresser and run away. He reported her missing, telling deputies that Andrea had taken some personal items and some money. He said she had run away in the past and did not get along with him or her mother. Police took down a missing persons report. So Brenda didn't really know what had happened to Andrea. On the stand, she claimed that she was very upset about this, but... It seems that she didn't question her husband very closely about what had happened the day Andrea vanished. It seems that maybe she stuck her head in the sand. An article in Atavist magazine by Niall Capello contains a lot more details about Andrea's story. Some of the following is taken from that source. Once Brenda got home from work on the day Andrea went missing, she made Dennis call around to Andrea's friends, but no one had seen her. Brenda discovered when she got home that the amount of money missing was actually $150. This amount was sufficient for police to issue a warrant for Andrea's arrest for larceny. Dennis Bowman was listed as the victim of this alleged crime. 
Police assumed, per Dennis Bowman's statements, that Andrea was a runaway. They passed her case along to the Youth Services Bureau. Whispers among the community that Andrea had been abused by her parents stayed mostly underground. But Andrea had talked to some people about what was going on in her home life. She showed up with a cut wrist one day that was allegedly from trying to get into the house when her parents locked her out. And just months before she vanished, she told some friends and her high school principal that her father, Bowman, sexually abused her. Some who knew Andrea doubted that she had run away because she was so devoted to her new baby sister, who was born 15 months earlier. But others thought she had run off to find her birth mom or had run away with a boy. Brenda passed along tips about sightings of Andrea to the police, including one that claimed to have seen her at a truck stop getting into a big rig, all of which tended to back up the runaway theory. Okay, skip ahead 30 years. After Dennis Bowman was arrested for the murder of Kathleen, Brenda went to visit him at jail in December 2019. There, Dennis told her about the day Andrea died. He said that he and Andrea had argued in an upstairs bedroom. Brenda testified, quote, He said at that time that he had slapped her and she lost her balance and went down the stairs. He said he put her in a box and put her out with the trash. But that wasn't all. In a jailhouse phone call on February 4, 2020, Brenda spoke further with Dennis. She later said she had been pestering Dennis about where Andrea was and told him he owed it to her to tell her everything. Prosecutor Myrene Koch later credited Brenda for pressuring Bowman to confess. This from the Grand Rapids Press. Brenda was stunned when her husband fessed up in the call. When she again asked about Andrea, she said he told her, quote, so near, so far, right under your nose. I said, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, Andrea, she's buried in the backyard. I said, no, she's not. We didn't even live here then. He said, well, I moved her from the other house as soon as we signed papers on the land. When Andrea vanished, the Bowmans had lived in Holland on State Highway M40, which is Lincoln Road. The Bowmans were planning a move, though, and were already in the process of purchasing the property on 136th Avenue in Monterey Township. Soon after Andrea was killed, they moved into a trailer home on the new property while their prefab house was being constructed. It was completed in 1996. Bowman told Brenda he moved Andrea's remains from the old house on Highway M40 to the new home on 136th Street after they signed the papers in December of 1989. There, he buried her under a cement slab. Brenda said that as soon as this call was over, she informed the police. She told the detectives that for once, he didn't lie. Brenda Bowman was emotional on the witness stand. She said her husband told her so many lies over the years. But, as I said, she would have had to have deliberately put her head in the sand not to question whether Bowman, who had a record of attempted sexual assault and whom Andrea had accused, was involved in what happened to her child. Not only that, at the February 2021 hearing, Brenda testified that she had ignored her daughter's claims about what Bowman had started doing to her when she was 13 and 14 years old. Brenda said on the stand, quote, She told me one morning that Dad molested her, and I told her, That's a lie, and you know it. It gets worse. Another witness who testified at Bowman's preliminary hearing was Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant Todd Workman. Workman said that after Bowman's arrest in November 2019 for Kathleen Doyle's murder, he initiated a conversation with detectives about the circumstances of Andrea's death. He said, I hope your cameras are rolling, Workman testified. And when they were, Bowman talked. I'm going to read an excerpt here from WZZM-13's reporting on Workman's testimony. 
Dennis Bowman said he arrived home and found Andrea upstairs in a part of the house she was not supposed to be in, her parents' room. According to Workman's testimony, Bowman found evidence that Andrea was going to run away, including a packed duffel bag. Workman says Bowman told detectives that Andrea said she was going to leave, but Bowman told her she could not. She then told Bowman she would report again that he was molesting her, but Bowman said, no, you won't. Workman says the word Bowman used to describe his action toward Andrea as she went down the stairs varied from pushing to punching. He says it's unknown what actually happened. Workman says Bowman then saw Andrea crumpled at the bottom of the stairs and she was moaning. He says she was pinned up against a door jam and he pulled her away to lie straight. Bowman told detectives her eyes then looked like doll's eyes and she no longer had a pulse. He said she thought she had broken her neck. Sergeant Workman's partner was Allegan County Sheriff's Detective Chris Haverdink. The two were part of a cold case team looking into Andrian's disappearance. Haverdink testified at the preliminary hearing that Bowman told them he might as well start talking because, at that point, he had nothing to lose. Haverdink said Bowman told them that, quote, Now everyone is going to know what a rotten son of a bleep he was, that he'd been lying to everybody this whole time. He sure had. And even though he claimed he was confessing all, he gave several conflicting accounts of how Andrea actually died and danced around what he had done with her body. He admitted at first only that he had pushed her down the stairs and not provided assistance to her, and she was moaning for a while and then had died. In another statement, he said she died immediately of a broken neck. He also waffled about the precise location of her body. Initially, he said after she fell down the stairs, he put her in a tarp and took her to their barn where he hid the body. He then burned a duffel bag of her belongings in a burn barrel to make it look as though she had run away. But then he said he had thrown Andrea's body out with a neighbor's trash. The truth was even more horrific. Bowman had tried to fit Andrea's body into some kind of cardboard container, but it would not fit, so he dismembered her. Sergeant Workman testified that Bowman said he started using a machete to dismember the body, but that it wasn't working, so he had to switch to an axe to, quote, finish the job. He said it was a terrible thing to cut up a human, Workman testified. Bowman said he still had the machete under his bed, and it probably still had the victim's DNA on it. They found it right where he said they would. After Andrea's body was disarticulated, Bowman put the parts in four trash bags, along with some household trash, and buried them. This was behind the home he and Brenda owned at the time, on Lincoln Road in Holland. As soon as they purchased the house in Hamilton a year later, in 1990, he dug the body parts up and reburied them at the new property. But he still did not give investigators the precise location. Only when they listened to the recording of his February 4, 2020 call with Brenda did they learn where, under the concrete slab. Bowman told the detectives that over the years, when people believed that Andre was missing, he wanted to scream at them that they were all idiots because he knew exactly where she was. There were a couple more witnesses at the preliminary hearing, this from the Holland Sentinel. Dr. Gerald Corneliuson, a forensic anthropologist and professor at Western Michigan University School of Medicine, described on the stand how Andrea's remains were found dismembered and divided between several plastic bags. They had been buried in the backyard along with a bag of household trash in a cylinder-shaped container which had disintegrated by the time it was excavated in February 2020. A medical examiner, also from Western Michigan University School of Medicine, testified that the precise cause of Andrea's death was unknown, saying it had simply been too long since it happened to determine. She was too decomposed. He ruled Andrea's cause of death, quote, homicide by unspecified means. 
Bowman also wrote a confession letter dated November 7, 2019. It reads, quote, Dear friends and family, because of my present situation, because I love my wife and daughter, I am writing this explanation that you, my loved ones, have to hear. I have confessed to the death of my daughter, Andrea. I, myself, and no one else. In an argument with her, I struck her, which made her stagger backward and fall down a steep staircase in a house we rented in between Holland and Hamilton. Fearing more prison time and losing my loved ones, I hid the body and then disposed of it days later. I have kept this to myself for these many years so that I could live my life with Brenda and watch Vanessa grow into a successful young lady. Please, with all love, I ask you to support Brenda because I have crushed her heart and left her desolate. She didn't deserve this and has always loved me beyond measure. Vanessa was the younger Bowman daughter whom Andrea had so loved. Needless to say, these testimonials were sufficient for the judge's finding a probable cause. Judge William Balargion bound Bowman over to Allegan County's 48th Circuit Court for trial. The Allegan County Prosecutor's Office filed an amended complaint with slightly reduced charges. Because Bowman was already in prison for life, they did not need to hit him with everything. The new charges were open murder and a habitual offender third offense charge. The case was assigned to Judge Robert Kengis. But in March 2021, the judge had to recuse himself from hearing the case. This was because when he was a prosecutor in the Allegan County Prosecutor's Office, he had worked on Andrea's case by participating in discussions about it on a cold case panel of other prosecutors and detectives in Lansing. The case was reassigned to Judge Margaret Baker, and it was full steam ahead. Let's take a moment here to talk about another bereaved parent who made a difference in this case. This was Andrea's birth mother, Kathy Turkanian. Kathy hadn't had any contact with Andrea since her cancer-stricken mother pressured her, just a young teen with no reliable partner, to give up her daughter for adoption at age five months back in 1974. Catholic Charities and Virginia Social Services handled everything, and that was that. Kathy didn't know her daughter's adoptive name, where she was living, nothing. She certainly didn't know the girl was missing. She only found out that Andrea was MIA in 2010, 21 years after the fact. Years earlier, Kathy had tried to track down her daughter to alert her that the family had a history of aggressive cancer that she felt her biological child should be aware of. She was unable to find her, but she left her contact information with the adoption service. Then, in 2010, Michigan law enforcement had contacted her through a social worker to obtain a DNA sample, since she was biologically related to Andrea. They were trying to identify Racine County Jane Doe, and the unidentified young woman's description matched Andrea's missing persons listing in NamUs. The potential match had been brought to the attention of law enforcement by a volunteer forensic artist who had noted similarities in the two descriptions. Law enforcement reached out to Kathy because they needed DNA to see if Racine County Jane Doe was Andrea. They told her then that her daughter had been missing for nearly two decades. Kathy gave her DNA and then started to look into what had happened to her daughter. After setting up a Facebook page called Find Andrea, she teamed up with the forensic artist, whose name was Carl Kopelman. Via a FOIA request, the two of them dug up Dennis Bowman's criminal record, including for the attempted sexual assault on the cyclist in 1980. And a detective who had worked Andrea's case early on told Kathy that he had suspected her adoptive father all along. Then, in 2013, they received confirmation that Racine County Jane Doe was not Andrea. She was a young woman missing from Illinois named Peggy Johnson, who had vanished in 1994. 
Kathy continued to work to try to find evidence against Dennis Bowman. She contacted Andrea's old friends and schoolmates for information. She confronted Brenda Bowman and demanded she tell the truth about her husband, and she staked out the Bowman house. She manned the Find Andrea Facebook page and loaded it with allegations about Bowman. She went so far that the Bowmans went to the Allegan County Sheriff's Office to file a complaint against Kathy for harassment. While they were there, Bowman accepted and drank a bottle of water. When he left, deputies kept it. And this was the source of Dennis Bowman's DNA profile. The Michigan authorities tested the water bottle after he left and got Dennis Bowman's profile off of it. They didn't trust him, and they did all this on the down low. So they had his DNA profile at the ready when the Virginia detectives were looking for a match in 2019. And they had deputies who could testify that they saw Bowman drink from the bottle and attest to the chain of custody. Kathy's efforts were, in a way, responsible for helping to bring Dennis Bowman to justice. Dennis Bowman's trial for the murder of his daughter Andrea was scheduled to start in January 2022. But the trial didn't happen. Right before Christmas 2021, Bowman pleaded no contest to second-degree murder. That is not equivalent to a guilty plea in that it's not an admission of guilt, but accepts the punishment without admitting guilt. By pleading no contest, Bowman was opening himself up to sentencing as though he had pleaded guilty. Also, since he was considered a habitual offender, he had to know that he was opening himself up to a harsh punishment. A sentencing hearing for Dennis Bowman was held just last month on February 7, 2022. His wife, Brenda, was not in attendance. Pushing for the maximum sentence, the prosecutor reminded the court that Andrea went from being a happy, smiley child to an abused one who had confided to others that her adoptive father was to blame. She planned to run away and was packing her stuff when he came home and confronted her. She told him she was leaving, and the last thing he said to her was, No, you are not. He killed her to silence her permanently. He hid her body in the garage and called police after burning her coat and her bag. He reported her as a runaway and told police that she had stolen his money and taken her stuff and left. When he finally confessed to his wife, only after his arrest and impending extradition to Virginia in Kathleen's case, he told her he had buried their daughter in her favorite sweater. But in reality, he cut her up and buried her in a barrel in four separate trash bags with a bag of garbage on top of her body. There she stayed for 30 years. Dennis Bowman, Prosecutor Koch said, was the definition of a danger to society, and he needed to be sentenced accordingly. The defense didn't put up much of a challenge. They took issue with some specifics involving restitution Bowman was to be required to pay. But otherwise, the defense made no recommendations with regard to sentence. And Bowman had nothing to say before sentencing. When the judge asked him whether he wanted to say anything, he said no. Judge Margaret Baker was visibly disgusted by Bowman's murder and dismemberment of his own child, referencing him chopping up her body with an axe and burying it on site where he could see it every day. Quote, His numerous assaults, his behavior in this case, other convictions all indicate Mr. Bowman is a serious, dangerous man that has harmed many communities, many families, the judge said. It is impossible to even articulate the words to describe what he has done. Reading what he has done is sickening. But while the judge had the ability to sentence Dennis Bowman to life, she was not going to. This was only because if he received a life sentence, he would be eligible for parole earlier than if he received a term of years sentence. He would be eligible for parole in just 15 years. So Judge Baker sentenced 72-year-old Bowman to 35 to 50 years. 
She also ordered him to make restitution in the amount of $1,152.40, payable to the Allegan County Sheriff's Department, for costs relating to the investigation of his crimes. Allegan County Prosecutor Myrene Koch gave a press conference announcing the sentencing. She said Bowman had been a suspect in Andrea's disappearance for many years, but investigators had not been able to locate any evidence to tie him to her murder. She said that when Detective John Smith met with the Michigan State Police Officer Brian Fuller at the cold case conference, it led to a joint effort between the Michigan and Virginia authorities to bring charges against Bowman in Virginia after comparing the DNA sample from the Doyle case to that the Michigan authorities had grabbed from Bowman. This, in turn, led to his confession that he killed Andrea. Dennis Bowman has now been returned to Virginia to finish out his prison terms there. He has been placed in the Nottaway Correctional Facility in Burksville, inmate number 206-3396. Since he has been sentenced to life, he will never be sent back to Michigan, but if he were ever to get out of prison in Virginia, it would be to head straight from his cell in Virginia to another in the Wolverine State. Reportedly, had the trial proceeded, Allegan County Prosecutor Myrene Koch planned to call several other of Dennis Bowman's victims to testify. Now, we know that Bowman is a double murderer. What else? Well, in 1999, Bowman was convicted of felony B&E. But it wasn't a convenience store or warehouse he broke into. It was the home of a female co-worker. This was Vicki Brandenbrink's home, located about a mile away from the Bowman residence in Hamilton. Vicki and Bowman were co-workers. She told Fox 17 News that he was stalking her and broke into her home more than a dozen times. He even cut the bottom two blind slats off so he could see into her bedroom windows. After she filed numerous complaints, police set up a silent alarm in her home and nailed Bowman just leaving Vicky's house. When the officer asked what he was doing there, Bowman said he was a house guest of Vicky's. The responding officer didn't know the backstory, so he let Bowman go, but when police checked with Vicky, she told them, no way, this guy is the reason for the silent alarm. So police caught up with Bowman, and he changed his story. Why was he in Vicky's house? Get this. Bowman said he had diarrhea and needed to use Vicky's bathroom. Um, TMI. Police did not buy this story and searched Bowman's property on 136th Avenue. Hidden in the loft, they found a duffel bag containing a sawed-off shotgun, a black mask, and several pairs of women's lingerie. Guess who the lingerie belonged to? Yep, Vicky. He had been stealing her underwear for weeks, if not longer. Once Bowman's connection to Kathleen and Andrea was unveiled, Vicky said to the media, quote, I'm really thankful I am still here because I think I was next on his list. Per Fox 17, Vicky said co-workers nicknamed Bowman Hack and Scratch because, she said, quote, he was always hacking and scratching himself. He was a disgusting man. He really was. Once you got to know him, he was just creepy. Bowman struck a deal which required him to plead guilty to one count of B&E. The other charges were dropped. I'm going to quote from the Atavist article here because they got their hands on the sentencing memo. Quote, His sentencing memo, written by his attorney, doesn't mention his 1980 conviction or the prior break-ins that Vandenbrink had reported, which police believed Dennis was responsible for. Dennis's lawyer presented letters written on his client's behalf by various people. The counselor who ran Dennis's sex offender group treatment program, the principal of Vanessa's elementary school, Dennis's boss and a congregant at Christ Memorial Church, who noted that Dennis had taught Sunday school to kindergartners for the past six years. The court also received a letter from Brenda, who defended her husband, 
and from Dennis himself, who wrote of his behavior, sometimes we don't realize a problem until it confronts us face to face. Dennis described himself as happily married for 28 years. He said that he had two daughters, one 25 and the other 11. He didn't mention that the older one had been missing for more than a decade, and neither did any of the character witnesses. At the sentencing on the underwear theft, Bowman was sentenced to pay restitution for damages to the home and spent about a year in prison. Then there was another crime that Bowman recently confessed to and has been attributed to him. This was the October 1979 rape of a 27-year-old woman. The young woman was bound, gagged, and sexually assaulted by an intruder in her home. The perpetrator took cash before fleeing the scene and was described as a white man between 25 and 30 years old with sandy hair and wire-rimmed glasses. He was estimated at 5 foot 6 and 150 pounds. According to the young woman, her assailant was wearing a leather jacket and dark pants. She was able to work with a police sketch artist to come up with a sketch which was published in the local papers. Police noted that a prowler had been reported in the neighborhood in the weeks preceding the attack. Once Kathleen Doyle's case came to light, with its similarities to this attack just one year earlier, and the sketch of the perp appeared similar to photos of Bowman at the time, Bowman was questioned and confessed to doing, quote, bad things to the victim in this case. He had been living at a mobile home park right down the street from where the attack occurred. Police say Bowman is also responsible for the 1989 kidnapping and attempted sexual assault of a six-year-old girl near Holland. The unnamed victim was walking to a friend's house after school on September 22nd when a man had lured her into his beat-up pickup truck with the promise of puppies. He then drove her to Silver Creek State Park. He took her into the woods and removed her clothes and tied her up, but he ran off when some dogs barking nearby threatened to expose him. The little girl was left standing there crying with her wrists tied behind her back. Thankfully, a good Samaritan found her and alerted police. The girl was able to help with the creation of a composite sketch of a 40-ish white man with a mustache, and she grew up with her attacker's face burned into her memory. When she saw the visage of Dennis Bowman on the Find Andrea Facebook page, she recognized it immediately. She called in the tip, and police learned that Bowman was working in the area at the time. Per Wood TV News 8, quote, The rope found at the scene has been tested for Bowman's DNA but came back negative. Police say DNA testing is advancing daily, and investigators plan to retest, saying Bowman has yet to admit to this crime but remains the main suspect. It remains to be seen what other crimes, whether in Michigan or Virginia or anywhere else, can be attributed to Dennis Bowman. He has confessed to those he's been questioned about, but what about others? As we know, he's a firm believer that the only way to keep a secret is to keep a secret. Let's hope he changes his mind or more evidence comes to light. We have to wonder why he chose to adopt a young girl, Alexis Badger. Was it so he could have unfettered access to a victim? At the very least, Andrea's mom, Kathy, now can take comfort that the man who adopted, abused, and killed her child will never have the chance to victimize any other young women or children. After 40 years, Kathleen's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And thanks to forensic genealogy leading to Kathleen's killer, Andrea Bowman's case is also closed. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Thank you so much to Norfolk Police Detective John Smith and retired prosecutor Phil Evans for speaking with me about this case. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. 
And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and at DNA ID Podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the fairgrounds. Welcome to Active Shooter, a podcast that covers the whys, the hows, and the aftermath of active shooter events. We will delve into the lives interrupted by domestic terrorists. We will investigate the background of the shooter and together discuss ways in which they can be stopped or even prevented in the future. We will also discuss the failures of our mental health system. They have an active shooter in the building. A second call says they uh, are being attacked. I've been shot. One six nine ten means we got shots fired. Four fifteen a.m. at the Route ninety one. Sounded like an automatic firearm. But appears to be shots fired. We will look at the media responses and discover together how they may have inadvertently inspired and contributed to the rise of the mass shootings. Active shooter. Reports of an active shooter. Active shooter. Active shooter of mass casualty incidents. This is not a political podcast, nor a podcast about gun control. This is a podcast that studies the psychology behind active shooters and how and why they make the decisions they have made to take the lives of innocent people. I love you. I love you. It's going to be fine. Can you hide from there? Can you play dead? Welcome to Active Shooter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>